Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you for your grace and mercy and that Zach knows something about audiovisual stuff and is fixing the microphone right now. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for gathering us in this place and for bringing Zach and Abby and their children to us. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see more of you uh, this morning uh, and uh, what it really means uh, to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you fix it? I don't think so, but we'll try it. You're fired. <laughs> right. Just kidding. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, Zach, uh, subbed in because I know that all of y'all were here last week uh, for uh, class. That's uh, a, a joke. Um, uh, you know, already Zach and I were laughing because I've run into a whole bunch of people over the summer, and almost all of them from the Advent say, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't been there very much. And I said, well, that's obvious because neither have I, and I haven't missed you in, uh, at all. Um, uh, so you could have gotten away with it, but, but thankfully y'all are honest. Uh, but Zach, you're doing a, you had a great class last week. I listened to it. If, if y'all haven't had the chance to do that, I would recommend it. Uh, and, um, you're doing a nine week series, nine week series. Yep. Nine Starting weeks. in October. Uh, I was going to teach on something else and what was this other thing that we're not going to get? I'm just curious. I was going to kind of walk through various books of the Bible and highlight what they said about worship right. in however many weeks that I had. And Within a 24-hour period, three different people, without you know, meeting with one another and um, conspiring, came up to me and just said as a result of my first three classes that I did back in June, they, uh, they kind of told me, would you help, I mean, would you be interested in teaching on the prayer book so that we understand kind of why we do what we do? You know, all the nitty-gritty, everything from what's actually in the liturgy uh, to how we embody it and enact it. And I just sort of took God's cue and felt like this is a, a really good time to start doing that because it's been peppered in our preaching a little bit. Um, and I think one of the things that we had talked about about my coming here is, is how do we continue to see our worship uh, connect with the theology that we hold dearly at the Advent about gospel-centeredness, um, about law and gospel and those kinds of buzzwords that we do. And, and so I, I guess that nine-week series starting in October 23rd, 25th, whatever's the Sunday in the 20s, um, we're going to try to pull that out, and hopefully in a meaningful way, hopefully in a way that actually changes. And I got good feedback about last week. Someone was even coming up to me right before the class just saying, I had a whole new, as odd as it was, I mean, this, this, pat, you know, yes, uh, this service that we just had, as odd as it was, it's like I had a whole new kind of life for, for worship, and that's really what the goal of the class would be, is we get a lot enliven what we already do and become more passionate about the kinds of words that God uses to speak his ministry to us in worship. Well, how does, how do, how does Sunday worship translate into, because when we say worship, and I, I do this too, uh, I sort of slip into uh, thinking that that just meant Sunday morning. So when right. I say, oh, I'm going to worship, as if I punch my card for an hour and then I don't worship at all throughout the rest of the week. But how does uh, our liturgy especially, how does that equip us to worship throughout the week? And what does it look like to worship throughout the week? Yeah. So um, the Bible presents a, a tension when it uses the word and the term worship. Um, it, it uses it for gathered corporate worship like we often use it for in a church like this. We'll say, I'm going to worship. But the Bible also presents the fact that all our lives are worship. You and I are actually designed as, and uh, we are, worshipers by nature, which means 
Wherever we go, we're always aiming our hearts toward adoration of someone or something. Uh, and the kind of goal of what God does on Sunday mornings is to recalibrate our heart to be aimed at Jesus, uh, to be looking at him and his finished work, so that as we walk our, our daily life of living sacrifice worship, Romans 12, um, it is oriented yet again toward God. Um, that's why I love singing, Come Thou Fount uh, of Every Blessing. And the hymn has the line, Tune my heart to sing thy praise. We often sing it at the beginning of worship, precisely because I don't know about you, but uh, within the course of a week, my heart is strangely detuned and needs tuning, kind of like my guitar. If my guitar just sits out for a week, inevitably, when I first pick it up, I have to get it calibrated and ringing so that it's, it's tuned again to A440 and strums true and sings true and rings true. And, and good worship is like that, whether it's corporate or individual throughout the week, when we're strumming according to our design, according to our tuning. We strum beautifully the chords of worship unto God. And uh, the scriptures command us a command of worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that really is a command to worship. And then love your neighbor as yourself. So there's, there's a link between our adoration and love of God and love of one another. One quick testimonial. As someone who didn't grow up in a tradition with a liturgy, uh, here's what happened when I first started engaging a liturgy that had this movement of glory and then uh, confessing my sin and then hearing the word of absolution. My wife and I started attending a church in college that went through these motions, the same motions every week, the same thing over and over again of experiencing the glory of God, confessing our sin, and then, um, and then hearing God's grace to us. I will tell you that my faith before this formative period often looked like this when I would find myself on a daily basis stumbling into sin. This is how it looked before this liturgy sort of took hold of me. Monday through Saturday, something happens, and I find myself yet again doing something that the, the waves of guilt come over me about how I've totally blown it before God. I would basically uh, do penance. I would do things to sort of hold myself, make myself feel guilty about it for a while. Um, I would engage in certain disciplines to show that I was serious about not committing that sin again. And I would do that for about two weeks and kind of wear sort of a a spiritual version of sackcloth and ashes, and sort of show God that I was really sincere, that I wasn't going to do this again. That was my piety. That was my faith. Something happened when I started coming clean and hearing the liturgy as it spoke to me. Uh, it wore new grooves in my heart. It was almost Pavlovian, uh, that when the bell of my sin would ring, I would drool out the liturgy. I would drool out the gospel. What would happen was I would sin, and my instincts, instead of saying, okay, God, I'm going to try harder and do penance, my instincts were to actually confess it. And I had language to confess. So God gave me prayers to pray to God, most merciful God. I confess to you that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I've done, by what I've left undone. It just sort of came out of me. And then what next came out of me was hearing my pastor say these kinds of words to me. In Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you. I'd hear these words of absolution being preached to me by the Holy Spirit through the voice of my pastor. Um, and I will tell you, it totally rocked and changed my faith. It changed the way that I lived worship unto God because it became a response of thanksgiving 
rather than this sort of earning God's pleasure and trying to do it right. And there's a huge difference. I think that's what good worship, good liturgy, formative liturgy can do for us. I don't know if that's been your experience, but it is mine. And it's kind of trickled into our family now. The way we go about blowing it with one another is to pretty quickly try to just confess it before one another and then say, I forgive you. Like, even though our kids don't really mean it. We're working through the familial, you know, the familial liturgy of, you know, go apologize. And the kids know the drill now. It's like, Joel, I'm sorry for hitting you in the face. I forgive you, right? And it's sort of, it's a moment of confession and absolution. And someday they'll figure it out. But I believe in those kind of ruts that get worn into our soul that become part of the way that we actually acknowledge ourselves as sinners before a loving God. Right. So uh, all of life is is worship, but if I were to say, or you may have been to a church, and this may have even happened at Advent in different contexts, let's stand and have a time of praise and worship. What would you assume? We're going to do what? We're going to sing, right? So does having worship throughout the week, meaning sneaking off to your car and putting on really bad Christian radio and uh, (laughs) singing along to Amy Grant, (laughs) what what does that mean? So what, so what does worship look like yeah. if, you know, what does it look like to worship as a banker, to worship as a lawyer, to worship as uh, a stay-at-home mom, to worship as, a, you know, all of those things? Yeah, we have this conception, at least in sort of the evangelical spheres of churches that I've been a part of or been connected with, that worship is uh, some kind of ethereal, otherworldly moment where my eyes are closed and it's just me and God and my hands are raised and those kinds of things. And I think worship includes those kinds of moments, whether individually or corporately. Uh, But it often means that it leaves our daily vocation on the sideline. So people who are bankers, uh, who are lawyers, who are homemakers, who uh, work in hospitals have this really poor distinction between the sacred and the secular, such that we really can't conceive of how my ordinary life, Monday through Saturday, is itself worship. And I think sometimes when we say, let's have a time of praise and worship and define it as this fixed emotional and musical experience, we do ourselves a disservice uh, when when we think through our vocations. Because actually in the ordinary daily offering of ourselves as as a lawyer who's serving the public, uh, that, that is true love of neighbor, which is, under, you know, under God's theology of it all, love of God. That, that when we're loving our neighbor by doing our job well, that's worship unto God. You know? And it's not that I feel worshipful necessarily that I do it. I actually, when I rehearse musicians, whether a choir or a band or any, anything else, I try to remind us that our rehearsal, even though we might not be having worshipful feelings, um, is worship simply because we're engaging in our craft of note reading and putting together an ensemble. And that in and of itself is an offering of God in preparation for the service of the people of God. That itself is worship. Uh, And what I love about the biblical vision of worship is that it really does, it just permeates everything we do. And I think that us in our vocations, in our day-to-day lives can uh, orient ourselves toward God in the way that we love him and one another through the very things we're called to do as, as teachers and ministers and uh, homemakers and everything else. Yeah, so having Sunday worship the way that we do things here, uh, you mentioned the importance last week of Cranmer's emphasis on putting the liturgy in the vernacular because up to that point, it was all in Latin and nobody understood what was going on. And sometimes right. the actual ordained priest 
didn't speak Latin. Uh, they just had kind of been reading it phonetically. Right. Um, so, but even with that, in English, what we struggle with now, and surely they must have struggled with it as well in Cranmer's day, even when the service was in English, a lot of people will accuse, well, if you're a liturgical church, and of course there are, Every church is liturgical, just uh, some have bad liturgy, right. uh, but not us. So, uh, just kidding. Uh, but that it can become rote, and, you know, we're accused of not leaving room for the Spirit and, you know, kind of a, a lot of repetition, the same thing week in and week out. Um, so how do we uh, hold on to um, that resource to get us through the week so when we do fall and struggle and sin... Uh, we can remember the comfortable words yeah. or something like that without it just kind of bouncing off us like water off a stone. Yeah, I, I do think in extemporaneous traditions, the blessing of being in that, and what I mean by extemporaneous traditions is traditions that don't have such a fixed and formulated liturgy like we do. They have one, like, like Andrew said. Uh, but in those kinds of traditions, the, the movement and spontaneity of it from week to week is uh, is one way that it, uh, is a helpful catalyst toward making one's faith lively when it comes to worship. And so we as a, a prayer book people, our, the, the error, not error, but the, um, the downgrade that we will always slip into is that this does become rote. And that's actually what I felt when people were talking to me saying, help me understand why we do what we do. What, reading between the lines of people asking that question, they're asking the question of, how does this come alive? Because it feels dead to me. And that's a, always a very real and present danger in liturgical environments where we're saying the same things. Um, several things I think Cranmer would say to us, some of those things I highlighted because when that prayer book in English first came out in 1549, he wrote this pretty awesome preface, and that's what we went through last week. But one of the things he said was, uh, number one, you have, to tr you have to kind of put forth some effort to engage it. It's, if you don't, it will have that sort of bounce off your soul effect and not get in there. And so there has to be a, a willingness to say, I'm going to try my best you know, to engage this and, 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 uh, and jump into this. Um, I think there are other times, though, where the liturgy just is surprising in a moment where you're kind of going through the motions and all of a sudden something comes alive in it that means a lot to you that's the work of the holy spirit and that's a moment where uh, god is using it and engaging it the other thing i'd i'd say is um, invest some time into being a good listener to what god is doing in the liturgy and thankfully what's kind of cool about our liturgy that i was describing last week is that it really is built on scriptural words. Even the words that aren't direct quotations of scripture are allusions to scripture. It's a very Bible-saturated uh, book, which means that all these prayers that we pray, they're strung together snippets of the word of God. And that's something marvelous that is part of what the word of God is compared to any other book. God has done something unique with his word and filled it with his spirit. And... Um, a great summary of the scriptural vision of what the Bible is, is just like you and I, Ashley Knoll, uh, an Anglican scholar said this way, and it's stuck with me ever since, just like I can't speak to you without breath in my lungs. The word of God can never go forth without the breath of God, the Holy Spirit going with it. So even as we pray, there's a wonderful comfort in knowing that this is 
This is uh, connecting us to God's very word, where God does unique things through his spirit and in his spirit. And I invite you to, as weird as it sounds, test God in that. Say, God, I want to hear from you today in your liturgy. The liturgy that I've prayed for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I want to hear from you. I don't want it to be going through the motions. And I invite us as a congregation, it's what I invited us to when I first got here, start praying. Start praying that these very words that we already engage would come alive by the power of the Spirit in the congregation. Ask for, for Jesus and the Spirit to make it happen on a weekly basis. When you're driving in, you see the building and you're preparing for worship, ask God to do something powerful in and through the words that are sharper than any double-edged sword and pierce us and fillet us open. Almighty God, our hearts are filleted open before you. That's what the Word of God does, is open us up and then thankfully sew us back together in the gospel. So one of the things that you mentioned last week is that when people think about liturgy, uh, they tend to give it its te technical definition, which is the work of the people. And so, and especially in extemporaneous context, that's, that's a new term, um, we just call them free churchmen. Right. But, uh, but they, in that context, there is this sense of sort of getting ready and conjuring yourself up like I'm, you know, there's a difference between praying, Lord, I pray that I encounter you, but there's also something to be, you know, that almost that you're trying to affect your feelings so that right. your feelings affirm that you've had some connection with the Lord, whether or not that's actually happened. So not just thinking about it as the work of the people, uh, but actually God's work on us. That's right. And so what does it feel like to encounter the Lord and, and how does God use the liturgy to do that? Um, great question. Go to a place like Isaiah 6, and you will have a very concrete picture, beginning of Isaiah 6, on what it looks like to encounter the Lord. Um, the encounter of Isaiah with God was frightening and comforting. That's the way I describe it in, in a successive act, you know, that God, uh, Isaiah encountered God's presence. And God's presence overwhelmed him because all of a sudden Isaiah saw the veil pulled away and got to have a vision of heaven that many of us don't have. But I believe, I really believe that in uh, our worship on Sunday mornings is available to us and that God desires uh, to expose that type of vision uh, to us. And then you watch Isaiah journey through this and it's a very, it's a very liturgical journey. Um, in the sense, he encounters God and sees these angels and heavenly beings crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what's his first reaction? His first reaction is the same reaction that we have on Sunday mornings in our liturgy once we've encountered Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open. And we see his glory in the law. His first reaction is this, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Confession. And then he's stuck. He has nothing more to bring to the table. So God has done a work on him by sort of displaying his glory before Isaiah. And Isaiah's response can only be, I'm not fit to be in your presence right now. I'm not fit to encounter this. And I mean, it, it was emotionally charged. It wasn't like his emotions were checked out at the door. This was something that freaked him out, you know? And so what is God's response to the dead end of Isaiah's confession? Behold, an angel comes from the altar of God with a fiery coal comes to him symbolically and says, behold, 
your sins are forgiven. This moment of forgiveness and absolution uh, where Jesus is displayed before Isaiah and Isaiah sees the vision of his salvation. Um, and I would say that available to us in our, in our worship, in our liturgy, is this kind of experience on a week-to-week -week basis. And I know we don't, always, uh, we don't always feel it, but this is the very work of God on us to open us up, expose us as the frauds that we are, to kind of point out that we've been putting on this charade pretty well, well, the game is up. I'm going to display for you yet again how glorious and majestic I am. That's why we sing these opening hymns that have all these lines about God's attributes and glory and majesty. It's meant to make us feel very, very small. It's to get us in that place where God's doing this work on us to uh, expose all those dark recesses of our hearts that we were able to conceal before our spouse or our roommate or our, uh, our uh, fellow students or anybody else, you know? And God's saying, not me. Uh, my light's too bright. I can see it all. And it's, it's to get to that come clean place so that God can do his second work. And the second more powerful work is to declare, I have provided full and final salvation for you yet again, O forgetful Christian, in Jesus Christ your Lord. And I provide you all his riches of merit and righteousness, and I take away the record of sins, and I choose as God somehow to remember them no more. That word does a work. And then people are able to say, uh, I lift up my, you know, uh, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. Now I lift my heart up to the Lord. It's good to give thanks. It's good to respond. So liturgy is much more the work of God on the people. And to, how do we get ready for that? I think it's just to say, God, I'm ready to hear from you today. I want, even though I'm distracted, even though I've just yelled at my kids or had a fight with my spouse or had a really frazzled drive into downtown or got here late, God, minister to me. I want to, it's, it's really coming into worship with the only entry ticket we need, which isn't that I've prepared my heart and conjured up all this stuff. My entry ticket into worship is my need. It's like the hymn says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. That's what the hymn writer says. This he gives you. So our entrance in is our need. What does God want from you in worship? Your need. And he'll provide everything else, period. That's what it is. So, I mean, what, <clears throat> one of the things, you know, a, the Cranmerian form of worship or how things used to go uh, is a biblical pattern. So one of the things that changed in the United States in the prayer book was in 1928, which anybody who wants to complain about the 1979 prayer book, uh, 28 was the problem <laughs> um, because that's what uh, let the horse out of the barn. But uh, prior to 1928, uh, after the Sanctus, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, yep. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. What came next? We do not presume to come to this thy table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, uh, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but you are the Lord, God whose property is always uh, to have mercy. So that's Isaiah 6, right? Yes, it is. Whoa! And then it went from there to, well, what's the response? On the night our Lord was handed over to suffering and death, he took... Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. So there's a method uh, to the madness, uh, but even I stuff I just got like, goosebumps. I just got goosebumps hearing that. That's, that's awkward. Live uh, so, 
so I'm feeling less spiritual. But even you know, but even the where the liturgy hasn't changed, it's still lost on us. I mean, what y'all go through to get here on a Sunday morning. I mean, I was talking with the vestry and saying, let's just imagine for a moment what it's like to come to the Advent on a Sunday, especially if you're new. Uh, You're you're driving in, uh, you're wondering where you're going to park. You finally find a parking spot. You're wondering where to take the kids. You finally find the front doors, and the big doors that you presume get you into the church are the ones that are locked. And then you look over, and there's a side. And then you walk in, and there's a bunch of people crowded in the back, and certain people and that look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man because they have white stuff on. They're giving you funny looks because you want to cut through and, and get to a pew. I'd never come back ever again. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but here you are. And it's funny to me, I saw this a little bit more in Beaufort uh, because there was a swing bridge and people that lived on the other side of the Beaufort River, uh, you could always tell when the bridge had opened up before church uh, because it was only about two-thirds full and then literally 150 people would come in uh, at once, 15 minutes into the service uh, because of the bridge. And you could just see the looks of frustration on their faces where, you know, uh, the mom is ready to kill the kids and the kids are mad at dad and it just, and everyone's like, just get it right because we're before the Lord now and there's got to be judgment and, you know, purify <laughs> our heart and God can see you. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, you think we got to get our church face on, right? Yeah. We got we to get our act together. Yeah. When our opening collect for communion is Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, actually, Rather than flipping the switch and saying, okay, now I've got to put on my Christian hat, right. what God wants to engage with is your anger over the swing bridge, uh, your, right. your anger over finding the parking spot, your, your bad week at work, uh, your joys, your failures. Real life, that's actually what Jesus is interested in and engaging with you in, not um, this sort of uh, display of of holiness, yep. and when it becomes a display, that's where I find that it can become really, really rote. There is a, um, there's this conception that when we come to church, we're, I've, heard, I've heard pastors and ministers say this. I probably said this once too. I don't believe it anymore. When you come into the doors of the church, leave your burdens at the door. You know, leave, leave this, leave the world and come into God's holy space, you know. That's, that's terribly hard <laughs> because my burdens need relieving. And so I come in and have like this brief respite and then I'm supposed to go back out and pick them up. And then it kind of tells me that God has nothing to do with my burdens. You know, worship is for God, but not for me. And strangely enough, I actually need God to do something with my burdens. I think the better thing to encourage the people of God is when you come in, bring all your baggage drag them down into the front before the feet of Jesus and watch him do something with it. That means bring your anger, bring your uh, irritation, bring your bad week, bring your sin and lay it at his feet and watch him do a miracle with that. It's a way more important thing. So, I mean, what does that look like on a Sunday morning? I think that looks like just real authentic people gathering before God, um, not trying to put on some extra churchy pious sheen, but being who we really are Monday through Saturday and bringing that person in before the Almighty God who sees it anyway. Like, who are we kidding, right? Um, who sees it anyway. And the beauty of that is you get to watch the relief occur in your life as God does something with it rather than 
lets you check your burden code at the door and then pick it up before you leave and have to deal with it on your own. Yeah, I mean, some of us like me, we would be backing our U-Haul trailers uh, into the church. We should have, we should, uh, you know, have a big garage door yeah, for everybody's uh, burdens. Brian Helm, take note, get excited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the uh, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, even this morning for me, you know, I've been gone for a little bit and trying. As you, if you were at the nine o'clock, you could tell, uh, trying to get back into the rhythm of things. And uh, this morning, um, I got bit by a dog. <laughs> And then uh, I spilled coffee all over the suit, but thankfully God in his providence had me wear a tan suit today. I just got, I just got goosebumps. Uh, <laughs> and, um, um, so, um, so I'm just not feeling it, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I'm not feeling it today. And, um, and, and I feel like I'm uh, off in a different stratosphere. But... Yeah. Uh, but uh, what I was really excited about doing was coming back and being with, with y'all. I mean, it's very interesting that in the Bible, when uh, the word ecclesia is used, we translate that normally as church. Uh, but really, it actually shows up in uh, the Latin Old Testament in uh, the Vulgate uh, when, um, um, as well. Uh, and it's always when God's people gather together to hear his word. Right, so you're doing church uh, if you're in a small group. You're doing church if you're, you know, worshiping together. If you're opening your Bibles together. If you're gossiping the gospel together, uh, you're doing church uh, in those uh, in those places uh, in in your life. And so Sunday worship being so formative uh, in in our lives. I mean, it's one. Of the, it's a remarkable thing to me that when I go to visit people, especially people on their deathbeds, mm. they can't remember their spouse's name, but they remember the liturgy. Right. Right? They, remember, they remember the Lord's Prayer. They remember uh, certain hymns. And, right. and so clearly those things are getting uh, below the surface right. and really have some, some staying power. And so you know, some of the things that we've been doing here at the Advent are trying to allow people, like Cranmer did, rather than flipping through multiple books, to actually, at, it, from a practical level, to actually engage right. in, in what we're doing uh, on, on Sunday mornings. Now, for especially Anglicans and, and uh, liturgical people, uh, that, that's very discomforting uh, because we're so, so used to right. uh, doing things uh, a certain way. And um, so how, uh, so you're doing a nine-week series on, uh, on this kind of thing, and I would encourage you uh, to be a part of that. Uh, this is not any sort of precursor to us doing anything crazy at the Advent, but just we do a very good job of talking about the what at the Advent, you know, who we are. If I asked you all, who is the Advent, most of you all would probably give a really good answer, if not all of you. Uh, but when you ask why, why does the Advent do that? Why is the Advent this way? And, I mean, even thinking about uh, those types of things that we kind of get into a rut on. So even uh, beyond uh, our liturgy, the kind of church that we are, you know, when I was talking to the vestry about walking up the steps on 19th, no, wait a minute, what's that, 20th, 20th uh, walking up 20th Street, why don't we open those doors? We've never thought about that, right? It seems pretty obvious that that, that probably would be uh, a good idea, and there are plenty of reasons talking about utility fees and things like that to, to discuss, but I could care less about that. Um, uh, maybe you do. 
but uh, but why why don't we do those things? And uh, I sent an article to the staff in Vestry recently that was in the Washington Post of all places, and um, and it said that uh, younger people go to church not because your church is cool, uh, but because of warmth. And so why is it, and how can the church combat that? Because often liturgical churches are seen as cold. Right. Um, it's interesting. I mean, if, if we talked about a church culture that brought our baggage in, and we were an honest and authentic people, maybe no matter how we were dressed, whether we were dressed in an intimidating way like this can be for some folks, uh, I think people I will- You have goosebumps. You have goosebumps. <laughs> Um, I think that concept of warmth really is just, warmth means no pretenses. Warmth means uh, genuine. It, it probably means pushing ourselves to be a little bit more outgoing maybe than we normally are for some folks. Uh, but it, it ultimately means like just real, just real. And I don't put on my churchy self when I go to church. I am who I am. And that means more, I think not only to young people, I think to everybody. When we meet, I mean, isn't, isn't it refreshing in our day and age? Whenever you meet someone who kind of tells it like it is, isn't it one of the most refreshing relationships to be around someone who doesn't hold back about how, they're, they're not, you know, they're not uh, obsessive over this, but they're just honest about their brokenness. They're honest about their, their sin, you know, uh, in a way that's very disarming for you. I mean, Abby and I had Nick and Aya Lannan over uh, staying with us, and Nick Lannan is an Episcopal priest up in Louisville. And he and her, their family were staying with us in our home. And whenever you have a family that's maybe not your relatives, but even your relatives staying with you, there, it's like a pressure cooker for like, how do you parent? How do we parent? And when our kids are sort of offending one another, what do we do? And how do we discipline? And uh, Abby and I know Nick and I well. We know their love of the gospel. And we know that they're, they're very warm and authentic people. They're, they just, they're acquainted with their sin and their need of Jesus. And they wear it on their sleeve. And it made home so fun to be around, even as our kids were needing discipline and uh, you know, messing up and doing mean things to one another, even as we were probably not being the best parents, it was always like, I don't need, a, I don't need to put on a show for this person. And there's, that creates a warmth. It creates a relational generosity that any kind of person can smell through and really understand, this, is, this, this can be a place for me. Because frankly, we're all in the same boat. Every last human being is in the same boat. And part of warmth is simply everyone coming clean. We're all in the same boat. I'm not some super churchy person. I'm not more holier than thou. Um, and I think even beyond the practical stuff, it's just simply being freed up by the gospel that says you're forgiven to be honest with others and therefore to be warm and welcoming is way more important. And, and frankly, like cool church is just another way of not being authentic. Interestingly, it's just a new brand of inauthenticity, you know? Uh, so it's much better just to be us, to be you, who you are, uh, before the Lord and before others. And there's a warmth there. All right, let's, uh, let's open it up for some questions. Thank you for your words. I have a question. You mentioned a pastor back in your life that had a real impact on you and the liturgy and understanding the liturgy and bringing the liturgy to life. Tell me about him a little bit. Yeah, uh, Irvine Presbyterian Church. Um, 
a really beautiful, it was where I started falling in love with uh, traditional worship and music and liturgy and hymnody. It was when I was in college. And really, I didn't grow up with a lot of that. It, it enlivened my faith. And I think what enlivened my faith was that the people who led it were sincere and passionate about what they were doing. And this pastor uh, was a passionate and sincere lit liturgist. Like when he was pronouncing the absolution over the people of God, you could tell for him he really believed the words he was saying. You could tell for him that he really was declaring a relieving word to sinful and broken people. Uh, some of your ministers will do this, and you should watch a little bit. I mean, hand motions can be funky in the Episcopal Church, but I think some have been taught when they pronounce absolution, they're holding up their hand, to actually put one hand here. Why? Because they're saying, I need this word too. Um, and there's an authenticity there, and it, that, that relationship with him felt real, and it felt like he meant what he was saying to me even as just one of the many congregants in the worship service. And it was deeply impactful. Could you speak to small groups as an extension of this yeah. worship? We're, we're going to do it next week. Okay. Okay. Well, this is, this is remarkable. Uh, I've never said so little. In a, you're the chattiest Hawaiian I've ever I'm met. sorry. Uh, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. All right. Um, Anything else? All right, go ahead, Abby. Absolutely. I was thinking about, you know. This is my wife, Abby. Hi. Um, tuning, tuning our hearts, you know, preparing for worship. And I was thinking about that. We, sadly, and have mercy on us, are not Alabama or Auburn fans yet. Um, but the I'm a on, You just <laughs> confess. We'll take you gifts. We'll take rice. No. Uh, but I'm a Colorado native, and I'm a Bronco fan. And I was thinking about, you know, the Broncos had the season opener Thursday night. And probably starting Monday, I would wake up every day and think, what day is it? Is it Thursday yet? I'm so excited. And I recorded it on my DVR. And I was tuning my heart for this game. And I was excited. And I knew it might hold heartbreak. It might hold elation. It probably would have both. And I would feel this, you know, like, why do I do this? Why am I here? Oh, I love this. This is the best. And <laughs> it turned out to be that way. But I was thinking if I could think about Sunday mornings that way, you know, if I could come in with that sort of preparation and that excitement and that honesty and that feeling, how different, how different it could be for me. Body paint on Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> I've got goosebumps. Hey, um, I, I was wondering if you could say just quickly, how does liturgy function as a kind of insurance against the excess of personality. Mm. Yeah. I think you just made the statement, and it was a very good one. Liturgy functions as an insurance against the excess of personality. Uh, sometimes when we go rogue, <laughs> we can insert ourselves into our, it's just human nature. You will learn this from Luther if you ever read him, to insert ourselves into the project of salvation. You and I do this incessantly, and we will until the day we die. Simul justus et peccator. When you're at, you know, the the um, when you're at the the zoo today, and you see the cornhole, sinner and saints. We're both. We're both. Uh, there's the cornhole game that says sinners on one side and saints on the other. So play that game, and learn about your own anthropology that way. Um, we, you know, we're, we will just try to insert ourselves, and the liturgy is a wonderful, especially because it's so grounded in scripture just a way of constantly taking us back away from ourselves 
And so the one personality and one uh, celebrity worth worshiping and adoring and looking at, Jesus. Um, you will see that. This, this, the liturgy is always trying to do two things. It's trying to put you in your place to stop looking at yourself and stop thinking that you've got something to offer God. And then it's trying to point you to the one who did offer up the perfect sacrifice. And then all that comes from that is thanksgiving and actually a changed life and resurrection. And it's a wonderful safeguard against uh, the excess of personality to be fixated and focused upon the person, work, and personality of Jesus. Good word to end on. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.